Welcome to the Antioch Podcast. We're a justice-minded Christian church in beautiful Bend, Oregon, seeking and celebrating the reconciliation of all things. May the Word of Christ dwell in you fully and give you peace. The scripture reading today is from the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Melanie. Morning, church. It is good to see you all. I'm glad you're with us today. Um, i got to start by confessing I'm feeling very self-conscious about this zit on my cheek and just want to address that. So I think it might be a sympathy zit. Um, I don't know if you noticed, Kip got his mole removed recently. Uh, You can barely recognize the guy. Um, So I'm just, you know, out of love for my brother standing in solidarity. Kip's lost, how much have you lost this fall, Kip? 40 pounds? Half of it was the mole, though, so I, you look good, and now I feel much better, so we are in a series called The Work of the People, How Our Worship Forms Our Faith, and each week we're looking at one element of our Sunday service and talking about how when we practice that part of our worship week after week, month after month, year after year, it contributes to our formation in Christ-likeness. And so another way of thinking about this um, is the conventional wisdom that really the two primary forces that shape the kind of person we are are nature and nurture, right? We've all heard this before. Nature has to do with things Uh, like the traits, the characteristics, the attributes that we're born with. And nurture has to do with things like the culture we grow up in, our family of origin, our relationships, our life experiences, and that sort of thing. And so the assumption that we're bringing to this series um, is that our nature is pretty well established, but that our nurture is ongoing. No matter how old you are or what life stage you're in, your nurture continues. We are still, whether you're aware of it or not, in the process of becoming who we are. And so as followers of Jesus who are seeking to become people who look more like Jesus, we are giving ourselves to a set of biblical practices here on Sundays that are designed to position us in a a place where we can be nurtured by the Holy Spirit. And that's part of why we gather here Every week, there are all kinds of forces in the world around us and in our culture that are also competing to nurture us, 
to shape what kind of people we are. And so uh, that's what we're doing this fall is looking at these practices and how they nurture our souls. So this morning, we're going to be looking at the practice of prayer. And specifically, the part of our Sunday service that Gretchen led us in this morning, what we call the prayers of the people. Um, We've been doing the prayers of the people for several years now as a church, but we've never spent much time actually talking about it and kind of explaining why we do it and how we're hoping that it helps form Christ in us. So uh, that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. Um, And really, today is something of a sequel to last week's sermon, if you were here, when we talked about the practice of confession, of confessing our sins. And so our prayer of confession and our prayers of the people are really connected to each other, and they're kind of like two sides of the same coin. Um, And here's why. In the story of the Bible, which is the story of God and the world that he's made, There are these two twin destructive forces at work, constantly attacking and seeking to permeate God's good world. Um, The two forces are what we call sin and suffering. Sin and suffering. These are the things that are responsible for basically everything that's wrong with the world. Sin and suffering, we might say, are our two greatest enemies. They are the reason that we aren't the way we're supposed to be and the world's not the way it's supposed to be. Sin and suffering not only affect the world, but they affect us because we're all sinners and sufferers. And so sin and suffering, huge theological categories that thousands of books have been written about. We don't have time to really dive deep, but here's as simply as I can put it. Um, explain and define the two in relation to each other. Sin has to do with the bad stuff we do. Suffering has to do with the bad stuff that happens to us. A lot more to it than that, but we are all, in that sense, sinners and sufferers. And so we know that at the end of the story, that sin and suffering are going to be dealt with decisively once and for all. We know that one day God is going to come and establish his throne on earth as it is in heaven, and everything is going to be the way it's supposed to be. One day, that day will come, but it hasn't fully come yet. And so the question it leaves us with is what do we do then with the realities of sin and suffering? How are we to deal with the bad things that we do and the bad things that we experience in our lives? Well, the short answer, and it's really the Sunday school answer, but it's the right answer, is pray. Prayer is how we deal with sin and suffering. It's not the only thing we do. But it's the first thing we do, and it's the main thing we do. God's people have always been people who pray in the face of sin and suffering. When we talk about prayer, there's several different kinds of prayer that we see throughout the scriptures. Um, The kind of prayer we talked about last week is called confession. What do we do with the sin in our lives and the sin in the world? Last week we said the first thing we do is we confess it. So to confess is to tell the truth about something. So when we 
As followers of Jesus, look at our sin, we name it, we own it, we acknowledge it, and then we confess it to God in a spirit of lament and repentance. And so we saw last week that to confess our sins means that we confess our sins of omission and our sins of commission. To confess our sins means that we confess our individual sins and our corporate sins. And so, like I said last week, I think confessing our sins is one of the most Christian things we can do. Meaning, followers of Jesus ought to be known for being the first to admit when we're wrong, the first to apologize, the first to own our mistakes and our failures, and to ask for forgiveness when we blow it. So confession is the way we pray when it comes to sin, the bad stuff we do. When it comes to suffering, the bad stuff that happens to us, the kind of prayer the Bible invites us into is called intercession. Intercession is about mediating or intervening or standing in someone's place or speaking on someone's behalf. So you may, that may be a strange or new word to you, the idea of intercessory prayer. Even if you've never heard that term before, it's most likely the kind of prayer you're most familiar with. It's when we simply pray on someone else's behalf when we pray for God to bless someone, to protect someone, to comfort someone, or to heal them, we, those are intercessory prayers, prayers of intercession, where we're interceding, advocating, petitioning on someone's, someone else's behalf. And so confession is where we deal with sin, and intercession is where we deal with suffering. So specifically in our gatherings here each week, um, we create space in this time called the prayers of the people, where a member of our prayer team comes up and leads us in prayers of intercession. And in some Christian traditions, this is called a pastoral prayer, and only the priest or an ordained minister uh, does it, but this is one of the places where we embrace and celebrate the priesthood of all believers. And we see intercession as part of the work of the people, not the paid professionals. And so here's how it works for us. We've never talked about this before, but each week, whoever's leading the prayers of the people spends time in the presence of God, spends time seeking the scripture, spends time in personal prayer, listening to the voice and the guiding of the spirit, and also in conversation with our pastors and our elders and our staff and the members of our congregation, seeking to gather up all the places of suffering in our church community, in our city and region of Central Oregon, in our country, and across the world. And the idea is that we bring all these points of suffering that we are all bringing with us each Sunday when we gather, and the first thing we do is bring it to God in prayer together. So our scripture today is from the book of 1 Timothy chapter 2. And um, 1 Timothy is one of 
the three pastoral epistles in the New Testament, along with 2 Timothy and Titus. And the reason they're called pastoral epistles is because they're written by Paul to pastors of these early uh, church communities. And they give instructions to these pastors on how to lead their churches towards faithfulness to Jesus during difficult times. And so in chapter 1 of 1 Timothy, Paul is dealing with issues of doctrine. He's dealing with what is it that the church teaches and believes, hugely important. And then in chapter 2, he shifts his focus to issues of practice. How is the church to organize itself and to operate? And he's going to, throughout the course of this letter, touch on all different aspects of life in the church. He's going to write to these young pastors about preaching and teaching, about family and finances, about elders and deacons and all that kind of stuff, all these important things that make up the life of the church. But before he gets to any of that stuff, the very first thing that Paul tells Timothy is this, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people. We'll stop there for now. This is the first thing that Paul wants to tell Timothy when it comes to what the church is to be all about. The first thing is make sure that your church is a church that prays. Like I said earlier, there's all kinds of ways to pray, and he lists a few of them here for us. Petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving, um, including this word intercession, praying on behalf of those who are suffering. And if you go back to the verse, who are these intercessions to be made for? He says, for all people. <laughs> okay, some of you thought our prayers are already long right? <laughs> for all people. Why and how are we supposed to pray for all people? Well, it's actually pretty simple because just like we all sin and regularly need to confess our sin to God, we also all suffer and regularly need to bring our suffering before God in intercession. So the reason all people need to be prayed for is because all people suffer. Suffering is somewhat inevitable in life. And the longer you've lived, the more you've probably found that to be true. It simply appears to simply be what it is to be human at times. Um, I don't have time to do a deep dive into a theology of suffering but I want to at least share with you a framework that I've used and that I find helpful when it comes to processing my suffering and the suffering of those around me. <clears throat> and I think that there are basically three sources of human suffering. Let me walk through them real quick because I think it helps us pay attention to the places God's working in our lives and ultimately helps us know how to pray for ourselves and each other in the face of suffering. And so the first source of human suffering is simply sin. It's sin. 
On one hand, you could say sin is the source of all suffering, and I think that's true in the big picture, but on a day-to-day basis throughout the course of our lives, when we're trying to figure out why we or the people around us are suffering in a particular occasion, it's often connected to specific sins. Like, we've all lived this before. We've sinned against God, and now as a natural consequence of our sin, we are suffering. So basically, if I lie or cheat or steal, and I get caught, and now I have to pay for it, that's one way that sin leads to suffering, our own sin. Whether it's kind of the little white lies or the major places where we blow it. Also, other people's sin against us becomes a source of suffering. Those that have taken something from us. Those that have harmed us. In one way or another, sometimes the suffering that we experience is the result of our sin. Sometimes it's the result of other people's sin. And we're able to connect those dots and name it. But secondly, some suffering is simply due to the fact that we live in a broken world. This is what we might call common suffering. It affects all people without discrimination. And it's simply the reality that we are fallen people living in a fallen world. And so this is when we're talking about things like health problems, anything from common colds to cancer. We're talking about natural disasters, earthquakes and hurricanes and famines. We're talking about the common struggles of humanity when things just don't go the way they should in our lives, not because of any particular sin, but just because the good world that God has made has been broken. And sometimes life is just hard. And we all know that. So sometimes we suffer because of the broken world. And the third source of suffering might surprise you, but it's following Jesus. Following Jesus is often the source of suffering in our lives. If you think about it, Jesus was called in the scripture a suffering servant. He was called a man familiar with sorrow. He knew what it was to suffer. And so if we are going to base our life on him and try to become like him, then we shouldn't be surprised when we suffer too. So sometimes that suffering is internal because as followers of Jesus, we carry this burden of love for everyone, including our enemies, which means that there are going to be plenty of opportunities for our hearts to be broken. And sometimes that suffering is external, albeit very rarely in our part of the world. There are followers of Jesus throughout history and all around the world today who experience legit, significant suffering because of their allegiance to Christ. Christians are beaten, arrested, imprisoned, and executed for their faith in Jesus every day. We don't know anything about being persecuted for our faith as Americans. And I actually think it's an insult to our brothers and sisters around the world to claim that we do. It's helpful for me when I'm experiencing a place of brokenness, pain, and suffering in my life as I process it in community and prayer to be able to do the work and think, am I able to identify the source of this suffering? And if so, 
how will that shape the way I respond to it and the way that I pray through it? So those are three sources of suffering in our life, and I think it can be helpful. It's not always that simple, but sometimes it can bring clarity. So every week when we come here and we offer these prayers to the people, we are attempting to do exactly what Paul told Timothy the church ought to be doing, taking all the suffering, all the pain, all the anxiety of the people and bringing it to God in prayers of intercession. And so first, we pray for all people, especially those who are suffering. Then as we keep moving in verse two, Paul gives another category of people that the church needs to be praying for. He says, for all people, and then he says, for kings and all those in authority. So Paul tells Timothy, make sure that the church is regularly praying for kings and others in positions of power and authority. What an interesting thing to say. Among the first things that Paul instructs these early churches to pay attention to. Why would Paul say this? Because when it comes to issues of sin and suffering, we're not just talking about individual people facing personal challenges. We're also talking about issues of systemic sin and injustice and societal suffering. So yeah, we pray for our friend who's having shoulder surgery, and we also pray that the U.S. Supreme Court would rule with wisdom and administer justice for the oppressed. We pray for both. I didn't want to talk about this today, but... Paul does when he says we have to pray for kings and those in authority. So um, you didn't even giggle at that. So now I'm like really nervous. This isn't going anywhere else. But many of us think of our faith as personal. And it is, but it's not private. Because if Jesus Christ is king, then his gospel is public truth. And it has something to say, not just to individual souls, but to entire empires and economies and ecosystems. So that's part of why Paul tells Timothy that the church ought to be praying for kings and rulers. This is about something much bigger than just my personal peace and comfort. But there's another layer to what Paul's doing here too, and it's really fascinating. It has to do with the historical context in which Paul's writing. See, about 27 years before the birth of Jesus, Julius Caesar, the Roman emperor, was assassinated. And not long after that, the Roman Empire proclaimed Caesar to be divine. And they included him among the deities of the state. So in other words, after his death, Caesar was officially recognized as a Roman god and therefore as an object of prayer and worship among the people of Rome. So, Paul is writing this letter to Timothy in a society where it was common for people to pray to Caesar and other state-sponsored gods. And what Paul tells Timothy here is that the church doesn't pray to the kings. We pray for the kings. Yes, the gospel is public truth. Yes, the church cares about systems and structures. Yes, we pray for kings and rulers and presidents and mayors and governors and senators. We pray for them, but we don't pray to them. Meaning we don't look to politics for what only Christ can offer. We don't place our trust in any politician or any party. 
We pray for the kings, not to them. So often in our prayers of the people, we pray not for any specific political candidate or ballot measure. We have nothing to do with any of that stuff, but for God's rule and reign on earth as it is in heaven. So Paul says, make sure the church is praying. First of all, for those who are suffering, and second, for kings and others in authority. Okay, got it. We know who we're supposed to be praying for. Literally everybody. <laughs> um, but what we don't know yet is why. Why is it important that followers of Jesus devote themselves to praying for each other and praying for the world? He moves on in verse 2 to say that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is why. Paul isn't trying to explain to Timothy here everything there is to know about prayer, but he is trying to explain one extremely important idea about the purpose of prayer. Apparently, Somehow, when followers of Jesus devote themselves to praying for each other and praying for the suffering in the world, it enables us to live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. So Paul wants the church to understand that when we pray, the reason isn't to get God to do what we think he ought to do, but rather so that we can be transformed into people who look like Jesus. That is the primary purpose of prayer. This is what C.S. Lewis was talking about when he famously wrote, I pray because I can't help myself. I pray because I'm helpless. I pray because the need flows out of me all the time, waking and sleeping. It doesn't change God. It changes me. This is what Paul is saying, that when we bring the concerns of the community and the suffering of the world before God in prayer together, our lives will be increasingly marked by dignity, peace, and an absence of anxiety and anger. Because we can't control how the kings and others in high places of power rule the world, but we can pray for them. And we know that God hears our prayers and he can do things that we can't. And once we get this straight, our anxiety begins to dwindle and the peace of God comes to rule in its place. So how does this actually work? How does prayer lead us to become people of peace, especially in the midst of whatever I'm suffering? Um, especially when it comes to the mysteries of unanswered prayer. I know I've got questions, and I bet you do as well. So I think it's helpful to take what we know about sin and use it as a lens to talk about suffering. Because I don't know about you, but every once in a while I hear a miraculous story where someone who has been caught up in a pattern of sin, violence, addiction, bitterness, anger, whatever, and in a moment of supernatural intervention, their sin is dealt with and defeated on the spot. And they have this amazing testimony that I left that church service or I left that prayer meeting or I left that therapy session and now I'm completely set free and never struggle with that sin again. Sometimes that happens. 
In the same way, every once in a while we hear a story uh, about somebody who's dying of cancer or their life is falling apart or they're facing a disaster in this moment of supernatural intervention. God answers all their prayers and completely heals them or rescues them or saves them or redeems them or whatever. And the doctors are speechless and there's no other way of explaining it. God came through. Sometimes that happens. But not that often. The miracles I've witnessed, if I'm honest, feel pretty few and far between. As a pastor, I've prayed over lots of sick people. Most of them stayed sick. I've prayed with lots of hurting and suffering people. Most of them kept suffering. So what are we doing? What's the point of prayer? If you've read the book, The Cure, many of us live with this picture that I'm here and God's over there and there's this pile of my sin standing between us. And the invitation of the gospel is that when we confess our sins to God, he forgives us and he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. But the truth is, that doesn't make the pile of sin in my life disappear, does it? It simply repositions the players. So now that it's me and God standing here side by side looking at my sin together. That's what confession does for us. And I wonder if there might be a similar scenario when it comes to suffering. That I'm here and God's over there and there's this huge pile of pain, loss, disappointment, and suffering standing between us. And if I bring that suffering to God in prayer, it's not usually going to make the suffering disappear, but it's going to reposition us. So now it's me and God standing side by side, looking at my pain and the suffering of the world together. That's how prayer changes us. It's the same thing Paul said in the letter to the Philippians. Don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Why? Because he's going to change the world into the way you think it should be? No, so that the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So that peace, that experience of shalom that we're all desperate for, isn't the absence of suffering as much as we think it is, but it's actually the reorientation of our circumstances in the presence of Jesus. The peace of God doesn't always change our circumstances. In fact, sometimes it makes things even more complicated, but it will change our hearts. And so this is the reason the church has always been a people of prayer. This is the reason we do the prayers of the people every week. It's for the sake of our own formation so that we can become people of peace in a culture of anxiety. Because when you look at Jesus, what you see is a man of prayer. A man who regularly withdrew from the crowds to draw life from the Father and to be filled by the Spirit. 
And so this is why we do the prayers of the people week in and week out, that we might be formed, not just people that come to church once a week, but that the life of Christ, the prayer life of Christ, might be formed in us as well. Um, that's why we do the prayers of people. We're running out of time, so the last thing I want to do is give you uh, three ways that you can actively engage in this part of the service. Because remember, uh, when you show up for worship each week, you're showing up for work. Liturgy, including prayer, is the work of the people. And so, church, here's your job description. Number one, don't just listen, pray along. During the prayers of the people, your job as the congregation is to set your heart in a place where you are joining together in the prayer that's being offered. So active participation, not passive observation. This looks like agreeing in faith, whether it's out loud or under your breath or silently in your own heart. Agreeing in faith, yes, Lord, amen. Thank you, Jesus. Because there might only be one person praying up here, but the idea is that this prayer is from all of us. We all chipped in, we all signed the card. Um, if you don't know, every single Monday when we send out the Sunday recap email, it includes a PDF of the prayers of the people that week. It's also posted on our homepage of our website every single week where you can go back if you want to revisit the prayers of the people and use them to pray Monday through Saturday. So don't just listen, pray along. Obviously, we all pray along in the Lord's Prayer at the end, but the invitation is that whoever's leading our prayers isn't just praying for us, but we are praying together with them. Secondly, share your prayer requests. Share your prayer requests. Pastor Amy and her team work hard all week collecting the prayer needs and concerns from the congregation and from the city so that they can be included in the prayers of the people each week. And so if there's a place in your life where you need prayer, even if it seems really dumb or insignificant or whatever, we want the church to know about it so that we can pray with you. And so every week when we remind you to fill out a connection card, one of the things you can do on that card is to let us know of your prayer requests that week. And if you're not here on Sunday, there's a connection card on our website every week posted or every day posted next to the prayers of the people where you can let us know how we can be praying for you. Just so you know, uh, nobody's, you're, you're never going to be named unexpectedly. We're not going to use the prayers of the people actually as a cover-up for like church gossip or something like that, right? If we're ever going to share anything about your life or whatever, um, we're going to ask your permission um, before we do that. So I'm serious. Please share your prayer requests so that the church can be praying. They may not all end up in the prayers of the people each week, but they will be included in the prayers in the life of our church. And finally, here's the last thing. Um, consider joining the team. This isn't for everyone, but there may be a few of you who would be prompted by the Spirit to join our Prayers of the People team. And um, if you're interested in that, it's, um, there's a process. There's some books that you read. Um, <clears throat> you get together with some of the other members of the team. You go through training. It's not for wimps, I'll put it that way. Um, but it is a wonderful way of serving our church body together. So um, real quick, let me just acknowledge Pastor Amy and the current members of our prayer team. Jeremy Guy, Maga Decker, Eric McCaig, Brooke Vossler, Jack Schneep, Karen Carlson, Cherie Powell, Rick Gerhardt, and Gretchen Rodomsky. Let's thank them for... 
for leading us in prayer each week. And if you want to reach out to Amy, she can help you find out more about joining this team. So those are some ways you can join in the prayers of the people. Last thing, before we come to the table, Paul concludes his instruction here with a reminder about the true source of power in prayer. In verse 5, he says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. So here's the thing. Our ultimate source of peace and hope isn't prayer itself. We don't place our trust in prayer. We place our trust in a person with a capital P. It's not that prayer works, it's that Jesus works. And in Jesus, what we see is a God who is deeply and emotionally invested in the state of humanity and the state of his world. And we see a God whose longing for peace and justice led him to seek out an intercessor among humanity. And when he couldn't find one, he became fully human in Jesus so that he himself could be our intercessor. So what this means is that right now as we speak, there is a man in heaven standing in the presence of God and he is interceding for you to be caught up in the goodness and the love and the mercy of God that we might become like him and join him in interceding for the life of the world. Sean's going to come and lead us to the table this morning. Will you join me in prayer? Father God, thank you so much that you have taken it upon yourself to be the bridge between our sin and suffering and yourself. That you have come to us in Christ and we now stand in perfect union with you in your son's name. Lord, I pray that you would continue to form us into a people of prayer. A people who rather than just carrying around our suffering, carrying around our pain, carrying around our anger, and carrying around our doubt, that we would carry it all to you in prayer. And that the peace of Jesus and the power of your spirit would permeate our lives. That we may join you in your mission in the world. Thank you for your presence. In Jesus' name.